This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Floods, fire, drought and storms. It seems every day brings a new story about the impact of extreme weather events. Aside from the physical loss and emotional impact on individuals and communities, extreme weather events also have legal implications for organisations and people. In this Hall and Wilcox's latest podcast series, we'll examine some of these legal issues, ranging from planning and environment through to retail and supply chain, amongst others. My name is Mark Dunphy, and I'm a partner at Hall and Wilcox. Joining me today, I'm delighted to have my fellow partners and colleagues from our planning and environment teams, Meg Lee and Brendan Tobin. Please join me in welcoming Meg and Brendan. Now, the planning framework has a huge role to play in both forward planning for and responding to extreme weather events. The topic of climate change and attributing certain events to the climate to climate change is also relevant in considering how planning and environmental laws are accommodating climate change or otherwise. Meg, I'd like to start with planning, if we could. Could you give us an overview of the role that town planning plays when we're forward planning for extreme weather and perhaps um, some observations about to the extent that that, uh, that may have changed over time. Yeah, sure, Mark, and thank you for um, hosting today. Uh, look, the planning framework has a really important role to play and, and um, as you point out, it has, has evolved over time in, in response to climate change. Um, so from planning policy, which sort of sits at the, the top of the, the planning scheme framework, down to things like flood overlay controls, um, it has a really important role to play in building uh, resilience into our buildings and, and placemaking and ensuring that climate change is considered at the outset of planning for you know, new suburbs across um, Melbourne's outer ring or, or new buildings or refurbishing. Um, so in the Victorian scheme, for example, there's um, a really broad state policy that's been introduced um, in recent years that has the overall objective of minimising the impacts of natural hazards and adapting to the impacts of climate change through risk-based planning. So that's a really important sort of framework that's set at the beginning of the planning policy. Um, it includes strategies um, that then need to be implemented as planning authorities make decisions about future developments. And that's, you know, granting permits or um, doing planning scheme amendments. So some of those strategies are things like the requirement to direct population growth and development to low risk locations to develop adaptation and response strategies for existing settlements in risk areas to accommodate change over time. So, for example, seaside settlements that are going to be liable to more flooding in the future. That's an interesting question with regard, and that's a great example, I guess, of how planning needs to change to the environment because what was fit for purpose from a planning scenario maybe 100 years ago might be very different for a seaside location now. How does that work, Meg, in terms of um, the ability to change a planning scheme to accommodate, for instance, a rising sea level in a coasting community yeah. and what sort of that may suit uh, some people who want to move into an area may not suit incumbents in an area. How do the how do planning authorities balance uh, the needs of the old with the needs of the new? Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good question, and it's um, it's not easy. Um, but what has been going on at the moment in Victoria is um, there is a requirement that that was introduced into the state policy to um, to plan for sea level rise of 
not less than 0.8 metres by 2100. So that's the climate modelling says that that's going to be our, our sea level rise. Um, and for planning authorities to start to, to do that planning now and to allow for um, the combined effects of tides and storm surges and, and coastal processes when um, looking at risk. So what the planning authorities um, jointly with the water authorities have been doing is, is starting to introduce um, new flood overlays that, that look at where those floods will be in 2100. So, and starting to build into the, um, the planning system requirements to, um, to develop buildings that, that can adapt to that future sea level rise. And it's causing, about, you know, some real issues in terms of that, that long-term planning. What about issues for buildings that have already been planned and approved and have been there for a long time and may be impacted by rising tide, for, for instance? How does that play out in a in a planning context? Can it be? Can they have changes imposed on uh, how they need to use their properties? Yeah, look, it's really only triggered. The planning system really only comes in uh, to play when someone's applying for a new development. Um, so, it it is interesting. We've just been doing a um, a planning scheme amendment at the moment for for some property owners along um, the Yarra River in Melbourne, and and the overlay that's being brought in there. Or proposed to be brought in there by Melbourne Water and the City of Melbourne is is imposing this new flood overlay that's based on the 2100 levels. So there's some developers there that are, are proposing to you know refurbish those sites, so they will be caught up potentially in this new requirements. Um, but others that aren't planning on refurbishing yet, nothing will trigger a requirement for them to do anything. It's really only about if you're refurbishing, you need to raise your floor levels and and plan for that future future flood event. And what role need to water authorities play? Yeah, look, Melbourne Water has a, um, or, or water authorities have a, have a really important role to play um, in doing that flood modelling. So they're, they're really the responsible um, entity statutory authority that, that is looking at um, doing that, that forward planning, doing the modelling, and they set the, um, in both the planning framework and the building framework, they set the finished floor levels for buildings. So it's sort of a, a, a blunt tool that says, you know, um, this is the level you've got to set your building at for, to deal with future flooding. Um, but they're also responsible as a under the Water Act for doing that future planning on a on a more precinct basis. And that's what some of the developers are saying, you know, we can't expect each ad hoc development to sort of go up, you know, 1.4 metres um, when the next one isn't going up 1.4 metres because they're not redeveloping. So how do you sort of look at a whole precinct and with the Yarra River and the important sort of thoroughfare that that is and a tourist attraction along there, along the promenade, you know, perhaps we need to be doing some more precinct planning rather than this sort of ad hoc um, response whenever someone applies for a permit. And do you think that's where we're headed to for, for being more a, uh, an objective overlay rather than looking at things on application by application? Look, I think both are really important. Um, and, you know, another example, I guess, um, is, you know, building standards and building in ESD requirements sort of to respond to um, not just flooding, but um, extreme temperatures and, and to make our built, built environment more sustainable and, and to use, you know, more solar energy and all those sorts of things built, built into the built environment. So there's sort of, you know, there's really important stuff that can be done at the planning level um, on the one-off basis. And then there's this, you know, strategic planning that, that's really important as well. Terrific. Brendan, over to you. What do you see as the role of climate change in uh, when it comes to, to planning uh, planning decisions and 
extent to which it is impacting on decisions. Thanks, Mark. Um, it's certainly one um, increasingly contributing factor is climate change. It's often uh, said that you can't attribute one extreme weather event to climate change. I think that view is starting to fall away and bushfire seasons happening uh, on, on in, in year after year, places of the country burning which have never burnt before, that it's becoming less justified that you can just dismiss an extreme weather event as being one-off. Uh, these weather events are being driven by climate change. And so to follow on from Meg's point, the government needs to be through planning laws and um, zoning and, and all those requirements be much more systematic about how it deals with the impacts of climate change and, and severe weather events because they will continue to happen on a more frequent basis. So I think that argument is changing. The second thing that we're seeing in respect to planning and environmental laws, Mark, is the role of climate change and impact on people's human rights. So both um, Victoria and Queensland have legislated human rights and there are there is at the international level uh, human rights obligations. And an example of this was the recent decision of the United Nations Human Rights Commission that decided that the Australian government had done not enough to mitigate the impacts of climate change on uh, a number of Torres Strait Islanders, the Torres Strait 8 they were. And, and those mitigation measures were principally the building of seawalls to protect lives. So that, and that claim was upheld. We're also seeing human rights arguments being in, interposed into other planning and environment decisions, particularly in relation to new fossil fuel projects. So climate change is really driving change in, in, in planning. Um, and people are not sitting back and waiting for the government. They're certainly using the laws to, to drive change. The second thing really is that planning will need to accommodate is displaced people as a result of climate change. And the government has not only announced to build a million new homes by 2030, but there will be whole communities which will be displaced as a result of climate change, not just in Australia, in places like the Torres Strait, but also the Pacific Islands and, and parts of Asia. So planning really needs to accommodate where, where are these new communities going to need to be accommodated. And in the Pacific Islands, there are obvious examples of islands uh, and whole countries potentially ceasing to exist uh, almost. In Australia, I guess it's really in the, the northern tips, the northern extremities, where that small life could have been issue. Yeah, that's right, Mark. So as part of the uh, Landcorp case that we've been running in Queensland, we went to two islands in the Torres Strait, Arab and, and Porima, uh, to hear evidence on country there about the effect of climate change. And the, the issue in that case was it was a coal project in central Queensland and and the they were drawing the link between the coal, which was would be extracted from the coal mine, which would be burnt, which would um, increase greenhouse gas emissions, which would uh, exacerbate climate change and, and the impacts of climate change like sea level rises, which would devastate some of these countries. I mean, the island of Parma is, is, is probably only five metres above sea level. Um, these impacts are all, almost uh, locked in already. Um, and the, this, these are people who've lived on these islands for thousands of years. It's their home. They don't want to be moved. So... Um, it, that those climate change impacts are, are, are very real and upon, upon us in, in Australia, not just in the Pacific Islands. That's right, Mark. Thank you. Meg, 
can we turn to um, looking at the role that planning in particular plays in responding after extreme weather events such as bushfires or floods? I guess to date we've been looking at how it's impacting on decisions, uh, maybe in a more theoretical sense, but let's turn to look at how it responds after an event. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, it's got a really crucial role to play in in, in the rebuilding process after um, you know a fire or a flood has gone through an area. Um, you know, we often see images on the television of of people living in caravans and temporary accommodation for a long time while they wait um, for their rebuild. And and you know, partly that will be insurance issues, but um, planning is one of the um, you know obviously the regulatory. Uh, processes people have to deal with in after a um, an extreme event and and the time it can take to get a planning approval is um, you know a frustration for many developers but let alone people who have lost their their homes in in these um, extreme events and and what happens really is that um, you know you've had um, houses in an area that is exposed to this extreme event that perhaps have been there for a long time and were built at a time when um, building standards um, didn't really think about bushfire protection, but now there's really um, uh, quite detailed requirements um, known as the bell requirements for bushfire prone areas. So when people go to rebuild, there's all these new requirements that make it quite um, expensive and, and difficult to get um, planning approval. And similarly in the flooding context, if there's a new flood overlay that's gone in since your house was built, you've now got to raise your floor levels and, and deal with um, flood resilience as well. And one of the, there's probably a good case study in Victoria um, when we had the, the bushfires, the Wye River fires, um, and the whole of Wye River basically was, was wiped out. Um, and then, of course, on that steep slope, they had flooding and, and erosion and, and lots of things to deal with all at once. And um, the state government, um, together with the Colac Otway Shire, set up a, a fast track sort of triage process to help people um, get through the planning and building process quickly. Um, and that included some exemptions, um, but also um, tailored sort of bushfire mitigation measures for the new dwellings. And they did uh, an overall assessment of the area rather than each person having to do their own bushfire assessment. So they tried to make it more efficient and, and cheaper um, to get through the process and, and faster. And it, it worked really well. It's a really good case study of how planning can, um, you know, adapt um, and help in, in a crisis like that. Would you anticipate um, that a similar fast track triage sort of process could be set up to deal with issues arising out of the events in Maribyrnong in Melbourne recently or in the towns outside of um, outside of Melbourne in Victoria that have been devastated over the last month or so? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, and you know, and I think the planning system ha it does have processes for. Um, being able to being able to do that and and to work with the different authorities, um, um, you know, planning really brings together lots of lots of aspects. And as you mentioned, you know, water authorities, there's um, there's different referral authorities like the fire, um, the CFA that have a role in in um, approving the the building standards to do with um, with protection from bushfires. So, yeah, triaging is is a really um, important sort of process. Brendan, what about the experience in New South Wales? Uh, a couple of examples I can give you, Mark. Through our pro bono uh, efforts, we're assisting a, uh, a gentleman that lost his property on the mid-north coast in their 2019 uh, bushfires and um, a remote property, steep location, poor access, 
and he can't get or can't raise the funds or doesn't have the funds in order to build a prop, build a new house which would be compliant with bushfire standards, driveway access to get a, a fire tanker in there. And so those more onerous requirements, which are understandable so for, for property preservation and also for his life, essentially mean that he can't afford to, to rebuild. So that displaces him. Um, the second example is we're doing a, uh, a case in Lismore at the moment. It's a, an appeal against, uh, in respect to a, a, a new housing estate. And there's a real um, tension there because Lismore, which um, suffered two severe floods in the, uh, back to back at the start of the year and almost faced a third one uh, a, few mo- a month or so ago, has a clear need for housing but and, and potentially to move people out of that flood zone. But the question is, well, where do you put them? And generally, you need to put them in locations which will cause other environmental planning issues. For instance, they'll displace koala habitat or they'll displace some threatened species or, or they'll, they'll require traffic upgrades and electrical upgrades. So it's not easy to relocate these people and, and it has flow-on consequences. And that's really, I suppose, the planning system needs to probably catch up as to where do you move these people to and, and where are properly located sites that, 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 that will still have other impacts, whether they're ecological or people's loss of views or moving moving people into, um, into locations that provide separation between two towns that are now essentially going to be connected. So they're really the examples we're seeing in, in, in New South Wales, Mark. Thank you. Good examples uh, in both states. Um, I guess we've been discussing so far, Megan, Brendan, um, planning decisions that are made, being made at a very local level, although, Brendan, you certainly um, spoke about the impact of, on Pacific Islands um, as well. Um, I'm interested in, at a federal level, the, the, the way that the government respond and particularly perhaps in the budget, anything that they're looking at allocating towards um, climate change um, adaptation and, uh, and, and and where any money they're directing through the budget is going to go and how it will filter down. Yeah, look, I'm happy to start with that, Mark. Um, there are obviously a lot of announcements in the budget relating to climate change, um, given we've committed to net zero. Um, so it's exciting to see. Uh, it will be interesting to see you know, how that sort of filters down and, and works in practice. But there was, um, I think, $47 million, um, for uh, the new Climate Change Authority um, to do with a lot of things, hopefully, um, including um, to provide independent advice. So that'll be part of the, you know, looking at the modelling and, and the impacts and, and hopefully doing a lot of mapping and, and working out where the, the greatest impacts are. And, um, you know, you mentioned, Mark, uh, that it might just be the the, the far north in, in um, Australia, but it's actually all our coastal areas are um, are potentially liable to, and that's where our populations are. Um, you know, there's been some recent um, uh, flood work done down in the Port Ferry area, and there's you know the whole of that sort of town is 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 potentially um, going to need to move as well. So um, a lot of that money will be spent on that sort of research side of things. Um, a lot of it will be spent on reporting. So um, under the new Act, there's requirements to report, um, and that will be a really important um, part of sort of tracking how we're how we're going. Um, there's also I think about 10 million for um, uh, 
Climate Risk and Opportunity Management Program, which will look at, um, I guess, uh, focusing on climate risk assessment and resilience. Um, and importantly, quite a, a lot of allocated money allocated, about 15 million to um, look at working with First Nations people, which I think is something that is really important um, in looking at climate change, both the impacts of climate change on country um, and also learnings from um, Indigenous groups um, about how to deal with um, with climate change better. In, you know, things like um, Savannah bushfire management um, is going to be a big part of our um, part of our uh, creating offsets and Australian uh, carbon credit units. Um, you can do that by this technique and we're, we're looking at a, a project at the moment for a client where they'll work with um, uh, an Indigenous land council and, and look at managing the, the bushfire risk um, and doing early burning, which actually means that rather than having a later, later season fire and releasing a lot more carbon into the atmosphere, if you manage that burning earlier, you actually can get a carbon credit from that. So working with Indigenous people and their knowledge of landscape, I think, um, um, is a really important part of our, our response to climate change and, and, and dealing with extreme events. Thank you. Um, Brendan, you mentioned earlier about um, your experience uh, in visiting the Torres Straits uh, and your involvement um, up there. Wondering if you had any further observations you'd like to make about directly seeing the impact of, of climate change through your own eyes as opposed to you know, seeing it in a, in a theoretical way or, or reported on television. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite stark, really, um, these these communities that have developed on what essentially island or coral caves and that have developed over thousands of years and how exposed to climate change they are and it's encouraging that at least the federal government this federal government is taking uh, some leadership on, on the issue and generally environmental planning laws have been a state issue uh, and those decisions are, are made at a state level so it will be interesting to see how the government responds to the federal government responds to calls for a climate trigger in the in the commonwealth environmental laws um but yeah it's a, it's 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 pretty stark and i wonder um maybe either meg or brendan if you know the answer to this that whilst we're it's great to see the federal government providing assistance to first nations communities uh and leveraging off their experiences and looking at their um, particular issues um is the Australian government assisting the Pacific Islands, our Pacific neighbours um, as well, and particularly the smaller um, islands and atolls who aren't as well resourced in terms of both research and in uh, in, in managing the impacts of, of rising tides on their um, on, on their well-being and countries? I think the focus so far, Mark, has really been on on Australia and particularly those the, those low-lying islands in the Torres Strait particularly in the context that there's been a number of human rights cases which are being taken against the Commonwealth. So I think that's been their focus. Uh, but certainly one of, I think, Penny Wong's first trips was to was to the um, Pacific Islands. So I think we will see more action there, particularly in the smaller, the lower-lying islands like um, Tuvalu, which uh, they, they, will, they will be unlikely to be there in 50 years. That's just the reality of it. So... Very sad and beautiful countries. Okay, well, I want to thank you both, Meg and Brendan, for joining me today. And thank you to everybody who has taken the time to listen to this podcast. 
We trust you find the information useful in this episode and please reach out to us if you have any questions that arise. Please feel free to reach out to either myself or Meg or Brendan and details um, uh, will be provided. You can find the details on our, on our website, uh, hallandwilcox.com.au or connect with us on LinkedIn. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and follow our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.